Shall we pray? So Lord, may my mouth speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart bring understanding that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. Lord, to awaken our hearts, expand our minds and shape our identity in you we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've got your, your card that we, that we had last week, and if you, if you weren't here, this is the, the image. We're thinking about this image of the mountain as we look through the book of, of Romans. And we come to the, the second week this week, what we call the Valley of Sin. Probably the most, if you like, the most difficult days hiking that I can ever remember occurred about five years ago when George and I we were on sabbatical and we were in Galilee in northern Israel and we were going to hike what is known as the Jesus Trail which is a if you like it's a 40 mile walk from Nazareth all the way through to the shore of the Sea of Galilee and literally quite literally we would walk in the footsteps that Jesus walked on the day in question, it just happened to be that that was the day that we were going to take the hardest part of the walk. We were going to walk from a place called Lavi, and then we were going to walk over Mount Arbel. If you don't know what Mount Arbel is, Mount Arbel is, if you like, quite literally the mountain that it overlooks the Sea of Galilee and gives you these panoramic views. And then we were going to finish at a place called Mictal, which is quite literally on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But even though that day was going to be the hardest day, it got worse because of the weather conditions we were, found ourselves facing that morning. It was cold, it was misty, and it was wet, very wet. In fact, for the whole seven hours of the hike, the rain was a constant companion, often pouring. You know, drivers would, would pass us by and think, there's a couple of English people abroad, nutters. Do you know what I mean? Why on earth are you doing this walk? In fact, one of them stopped and said to us where we were going, and we said we were going to Mictal, and they said, well, would you like a lift? And we said, no, 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 we'll be fine. And then he said these words, the problem you will find will be the mud. And quite literally never was a more prophetic word true. We got absolutely caked in mud. Quite literally, it would cling to our boots. It would entangle our boots. You know when you're trying to literally, sort of like you felt at times that you were wading through the mud. You know, and there was just this heaviness that even to take one step further would be a step too far. And as we, as we, as we walked, as we climbed, often it wasn't possible to take the direct route because the direct route you couldn't pass. And so we had to meander around, we had to scramble around. The trails had got so bad that they'd become fast-flowing, deep streams. And it was only when we reached Mount Arbel that we realised the severity of the situation because the parks department had actually closed off the trails. Quite literally, we were English people abroad. Kind of that sort of idea. 
But my overriding memory of it all was the mud. In fact, when we got to Mictal, I heard how one of my colleagues had quite literally been overcome by the mud. The mud of what the Bible would call sin. Because that's what I want us to think about this morning as we start to look at this part of Romans. As we kind of summarise 67 verses of the book, we're going to look at this idea of sin. Last week, if you remember, when we were here, we looked at, started to look at this book of Romans. And as we were looking at this book of Romans, we said how Paul, its author, wanted to give a message. He wanted to send a message to these fledging church communities. And he summarised this message under the words gospel, which means good news. And when he talked about that good news, you may remember, if you were here, he talked about the idea that the good news is about Jesus. That the good news is the power of God. It's the power of God because it saves everyone who believes in him. The idea behind why it's the power of God is because it saves you quite literally from your sin. It's that idea of Jesus' death and his resurrection overcoming sin. But also it saves you for something. To then live as his people as people of faith, to live the life that he did. And as Paul would say later in Romans chapter 8, that we then live with that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, living with us. That's why he's talking about this idea of his gospel being the power of God. And thirdly, we heard how this gospel is, reveals the righteousness of God. Now, if you don't know what the righteousness of God is, it's basically, it's an attribute of God. It's who he is, that he conforms to this standard of being righteous. That's who he is. But also, it's a gift of God. That as we'll see later in chapter 4, and as Paul mentions in summary, in verse 17 of chapter 1, that righteousness is something that we receive from faith in Jesus Christ to then live out Jesus' life of righteousness. And that was, if you, like, if you like Paul's good news message, if you want to understand Romans in a, in, a, in a couple of verses, it's in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. But as we, as we all know, you know, you know, whenever someone says, do you want the good news? It also implies that there may well be some bad news. And today, if you like, what Paul does over 67 verses is we encounter the, the bad news, and it's bad. And let, let me just say, no one revels in delivering bad news. Or maybe you do know someone who does that, actually. But no one really revels in delivering bad news. And, and least of all, me and I kind of have no wish to kind of troll us, if you like, through the mud this morning. But sometimes, as we see from that image on the map, we need to go down before we can go up. For at the heart of the good news story of Christianity is how we all need saving from something. And the gospel, if you like, in this letter is going to take us down 
before it's going to lift us up. And so when we, when we look at these particular verses, I want us to have in mind this, this quote. This is the most helpful thing that I have ever remembered about what the gospel is. And it's this, that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. It was said by the late, late Tim Keller that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And we need both. But if you like, what Paul's going to do in the next 67 verses is he's going to take us on that theme that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. And so he starts in verse 18 of chapter 1 and literally he takes 67 verses until he comes to that famous verse at the end of chapter 3 in verse 23 when he says those words, for there is no distinction. All of us, whoever we are, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's why we need to understand the depth of our sin because if we lose it, we lose the need for a saviour. So here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and unpack some of these verses from chapter 1 about what Paul says about, about, about sin is and, and what's God's response to sin. We begin in, in verse 18 of chapter 1. Here's, here's some that I picked out. You can pick out others as well, I'm sure. Firstly, we read how Paul says, almost like in direct contrast to the righteousness of God, he then says, for the wrath of God is revealed against sin. Now, when we think about the, the wrath of God, think, think not of an idea of, if you like, God losing his temper or God flying into a rage. Think neither of the idea of God being spiteful or malicious or vindictive. Because that's what the Romans are thinking at that time, because that's with the gods. That's how they behaved, and you had to appease the gods. When Paul talks about God's wrath, it's his holy hostility to evil. If you like, nothing arouses God's wrath except evil. And his wrath is directed towards evil. That's what he's saying in verse 18. And then he starts talking in verses 19 and 20 about, secondly, about how sin, if you like, is a willful rejection of God and his ways. And I use the word willful deliberately. You see, what Paul is saying in, in, in this argument is this. He's saying, an excuse of I never knew, or a defense of I couldn't help it in God's eyes, is always ineffective. Why? Because Paul will give us two reasons why it's ineffective. Why? Because God has been revealing himself to whoever we are, even if we're a follower of Jesus Christ or not. He's been revealing himself in two ways, through his eternal power and his divine nature. What he means by his eternal power is, is this, if you like. It's like when you go out this door and you look right, 
Well, you could look left as well, but if you, if you look right and you look across the bay and you see the beauty and the vastness of the creation that God made, and you kind of go, wow, and it takes your breath away. And he's saying that God has been revealing himself through his eternal power. If you like, as David said in the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth proclaims his handiwork. They have no words, they have no speech, but you just see it. He says it's through his eternal power, but also it's through his divine nature. In other words, what Paul is saying once more is it doesn't matter who we are. We're all created with that bit of God in us because we're all created with his divine DNA. What that means is, he, for him, that means each of us, whoever we are, we all have a moral compass. And we all know whether we believe in God or not that there is something wrong in this world. We only need to turn on the news every hour. And within probably 20 seconds, we find that there is something very wrong in this world. And if we're honest with us. And Paul is saying there's, there's no ex an excuse. It's saying that God's wrath is revealed against sin. He's saying that sin is a willful rejection of God and his ways. Because it's a refusal in verse 21, he says, to worship God. They knew God, but they did not honor God or thank him. And then we see how the result of sin is, well, shall we quote a bit of Kylie? I knew that would get your heads lifted up. It kind of messes with your head, doesn't it? And you can't get it out of your head. That's the idea of, of, of what sin starts to do. It deludes you, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to, to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because ultimately sin is this. Think about the middle letter. It's all about me. It's all about I. It's all about a substituting of God for an idol, as Paul would say here, a created God, a counterfeit God. And he, he kind of quotes from the, from the Psalms to just describe the Israelites' behaviour through the story of the Old Testament and all through I would argue humanities, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image of an animal or a bird or a reptile or a human being. And it leads, he says, therefore, to God's judgment. But perhaps not in the way that we might expect. You see, God in his judgment doesn't come to smite us. If you notice what he does, simply God in his judgment, he lets us go. If you like, the, the, the gloves come off and the protective arms of his love fall away and he gives us what we want. That's judgment. Because in verse 25 we read that sin is a rejection of God's truth. If you like, it's a rejection of God's view of reality. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. You see, what Paul is saying 
No matter how much the world tries to airbrush sin out of its very existence, or no matter how the world treats sin, whether it be as a criminal problem or as a medical problem, sin is a theological problem. It damages our relationship with God. Quite literally, that idea of falling short, all have fallen short, is the predominant verb, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, when it speaks of sin, we miss the mark. What that theological problem issue is therefore saying is that sin is the reason and the cause of all the problems in the world. It's the reason we die. And it breaks God's heart. For at the heart of the Christmas and Easter story is how God in his love sent Jesus to die for us on the cross to overcome sin and be raised back to life. It's why we can never ever kind of feel like we should I don't know, just kind of give in or compromise to the world's way of thinking of sin that's kind of shaped through pluralism, secularism, and postmodernism. You know, which tries and often succeeds, doesn't it? We, we minimise sin, think about this. We make fun of it, we, we mock it, we, we laugh it off, we, we excuse sin. I can't help it, it's not my fault. We grade sin. Well, in comparison to this person, what I've done isn't that bad. We even dismiss it. Try looking in a children's dictionary for the word sin and you'll find it's been airbrushed out. Why? Because if there's no sin, then we lose the language of salvation and there's no need for us a saviour. And what Paul is teaching in the book of Romans is why we desperately need all of us a saviour. For as Tim Keller said, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. So what do we, what do, we do with this? What do, we, what, do, what do we do with this message? How do, we, how do we deal with this message so that we don't kind of wallow in the mud or get dragged down in the mud? Well, here's how I think the Holy Spirit spoke to me this week as I was thinking about this particular message. And he, he spoke to me through in three ways. He spoke through a psalm. So I want us to turn, if we've got a Bible or if we've got our phone, to Psalm 17. That's the first thing. He spoke to me through a psalm. Then he spoke to me through three characteristics, if you like, which, which reflect God's righteousness, which reflect who we can be. And then there's a practice that we can follow. So the psalm is the first five verses of Psalm 17. And in particular verses 3 to, to 5. The three characteristics, well it, it's these. In a, in a few weeks time, Sally, George and I will be at a, a new wine leadership conference. And the title of that conference is Holy, Healthy, Humble. And it strikes me being holy, healthy, and being humble is all about what it means to reflect God's righteousness. And the third is the practice of repentance. If you don't know what, what repentance means, well, it's, 
Well, here's the child's definition. It means saying sorry and meaning it. In other words, that we, that we kind of change. And in this, in this psalm, David is talking in these first few verses about how he can stay on the right tracks with God. How he can stay on the right way with God. And he says, first of all, in verse 3, that I need to watch my heart. David says, if you try my heart, O God, and test me, you will find no wickedness in me. To the Hebrew, the heart was the centre of your thinking. And watching our heart is about being holy. Why? Because it's the heart, isn't it, that is the centre of where sin originates. Because the heart is the idol factory. Every one of us worships. Doesn't matter who we are, the question is just who or what. And watching our heart is about being holy. Watching our heart is also about being healthy. Listen, here's what the psychologist will tell you. You don't need a vicar to tell you this. When we worship idols, we become enslaved to their dark side. Ever seen people who worship money? And they always live with the fear that it's never enough. Ever seen people who worship beauty and body image? And they always live with the fear of feeling ugly and inadequate in comparison. Ever seen people who worship intellect and smart thinking? They always live with this idea that they're live, going to be found out that they're a fraud. You see, apart from the living God, everything else that we try and worship will eat us apart. And watching our heart is about being humble. For we then think not less of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. To stay on track with God, we need to watch our heart. To stay on track with God, we need to watch our mouth. As David says in verse 3, my mouth does not transgress. You see, watching what we say is about being holy, isn't it? For then we, we speak the words that Jesus did. Watching what we say is about being healthy. You don't need me to tell you that. Your doctor will tell you that, won't he? If you speak kind words rather than, as he talks about in chapter 2, judgmental words, then you live a far healthier life. And watching what we say is about being humble. For we recognise we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. And then David says in verse 5, to keep on track with God, we need to watch our feet, don't we? Quite literally, the roads we go down. He says, my steps have held fast to your paths and my feet have not slipped. You see, watching where we go is about being holy, isn't it? Because it's our behaviour which reveals our beliefs in God. But then we not only speak the words of God, we live the Jesus life. Watching where we go is about being healthy because it's our actions, isn't it? Which reveal our attitude towards God. And we, reveal, and we avoid, if you like, so much pain, so much discomfort by obeying him and not going down certain routes. And watching where we go is about being humble because that we then understand that actually... It's better to serve 
than to be served. Watching where we go, watching our mouths, watching our hearts, is about being holy, healthy, and humble. And then we need the practice of repentance. Why? Well, the late John Stott said it so well, didn't he? What Romans will teach us, what the Bible teaches us, is that we are saved from the penalty of sin. But we are being saved from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. But for now, sin is that constant, deadly reminder in our lives. And that's why we, we use the practice of confession and repentance in our lives. Not because God is unwilling to forgive us or that he just wants us to wallow in the mud. But because actually the act of confession and repentance is healthy. It heals us. It transforms us. It's holy. It makes us right with God. And it actually humbles us because we we recognize how much we need God's grace. And the thing about repentance, isn't it, in the New Testament, think about this. Think about whenever someone met Jesus and their lives were transformed, they were never sad. It was never like, what was it? Was it evening prayer? Or was it in the Book of Common Prayer? I mean, I never really got into them, but I'm sure some of you did. Miserable offenders. You know those wonderful words that you remember? Repentance in the New Testament is always joyful. Think about Zacchaeus. Think about the lost son. Think about the, the lost sheep. Think about the party that they have in heaven over every sinner who repents. But what Paul wants us to remind us of this morning is this. The gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. And as we'll see next week, more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Shall we pray together? Gracious God, we, we thank you for your love for us. Yet we also acknowledge of how all of us have sinned. We all fall short of your glory. And so, Father, we ask once more for your forgiveness. We ask, Lord, that we would see the reality of our sin, of what it cost you, of how you view it, and be people who are willing to continue to be transformed by you. Lord, help us to be holy. Help us to be healthy. Help us to be humble. That you would take us and transform us to be more like Jesus, your son 
we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.